If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. I'm Carrie Harrison, today in Tampa, Florida. Almost every week, we easily glide past the I in our initialism salad. If it's unclear, the I is for intersex. And according to experts, around 1.7% of the population is actually born with intersex traits. That's comparable to the number of people born with red hair. Despite this, the term is still widely misunderstood and intersex people are massively underrepresented. On this outing of IMRU, because we should and because Intersex Awareness Day is October 26th and Intersex Day of Remembrance is on November 8th, tonight we're going to hear from several intersex folks about their experiences and lives, starting with one of our favorite people of any gender for many years, Patty Spangler. Patty lived in fear that her secret would be discovered. She was born with two X and one Y chromosome. She was born with a penis. She chose truck driving as a career because separating herself from others kept her secret safe. Patty nevertheless craved connection and would call into LGBTQ radio shows while cruising down America's highways. Then in 2014, after hearing her share her journey toward self-acceptance on one of these shows, Steve Pride knew he had to meet her. Patty Spangler is over 60, a cancer survivor, a Navy vet, a transgendered woman who was born intersex and lived as a man for nearly 30 years. She was also a big rig driver known on the interstates as Trucker Patty. She has now traded her tractor trailer for a house trailer in Rolla, Missouri, and is quite simply one of the most interesting people I know. Hello, everybody. My name is Patty Spangler. I am known by friends and other people as Trucker Patty. When I was three years old, I asked my mother why I did not have the same equipment that my best friend Susie had. Why was I different? Because I was supposed to be a girl. I knew from my very earliest memories that there was something different about me. And I learned very quickly that was not acceptable. I was teased the whole time I was growing up because I was very effeminate. I was a sissy. When I got into high school, I always made sure I had a girlfriend because that way then they couldn't tease me because, you know, it was very hard for me to try to act like a male. I like to tell people that I was born with a terrible growth in my vagina 
Just like every other woman on the planet, I have two X chromosomes. But unlike a lot of other women on the planet, I also have a Y chromosome. And that gave me a penis that has never, ever belonged there. It took me many years to understand what my problem was. And I was fortunate enough that was able to fix it by a fairly young age. I had my sex reassignment surgery when I was 28. Tell me about that. I had been to Stanford University Medical Center's gender dysphoria clinic, and I believe it was 1980. And they had referred me to an endocrinologist for my hormones. And she had had some knowledge of Klinefelter's syndrome, which is what the XXY is called. And I had never heard of it before. I just always knew I was supposed to be a girl. Klinefelter's, some of the characteristics of it are very little facial or body hair, usually fairly tall, no Adam's apple, very feminine in appearance, and frequently natural breasts. And that was me to a T. So after examining me to prescribe hormones for me, she asked if I would mind if she did a chromosome structure. Well, I didn't know what the heck a chromosome structure was. And I said, well, yeah, if you think I need it, go for it. That was when I found out what Kleinfelter's was and that it was something that I did indeed have. And it was the key factor in why my medical insurance company paid for my surgery. What about your childhood? I hated the fact that I was different. I mean, I tried everything that you could think of to butch it up, to be acceptable, playing sports. Sports was big with my father because he'd been a professional baseball player. I tried everything. I always knew I was different. I really understood the attraction to men more when I was 14 and a couple of my older brother's friends started basically sexually abusing me. I didn't realize it was abuse at the time. You know, I thought because I was attracted to boys, I didn't realize that, you know, it could be very damaging for a 14-year-old to be messing around with 16-year-old boys, especially when they were doing things to me that I didn't want them to do. There was never any question in my own mind that I was a woman but I didn't want to be different. I kept thinking, well, as long as I have a girlfriend, I'm fine. Nobody can call me a queer. And I wound up marrying my girlfriend because I figured that's what I need to do. If I get married, all this other stuff is going to go away and I am going to be a normal person. And that's all I wanted. And that was the catalyst between getting married and then I was in the Navy at the time. I was a musician in the Navy and I was transferred to New Orleans, Louisiana to be a part of the Navy Steel drum band. While I was there and fascinated with the French Quarter, I went into my first gay bar. I knew then that I couldn't live the way I was living anymore. I told my wife that I was gay and that we had to split up. And I started exploring the gay scene in New Orleans. I met a bartender at the Bourbon Pub, which is still there on Bourbon Street, still very busy gay bar today. And he put me in drag for Halloween. And there were so many people that thought he had brought a fag hag friend with him. 
on the round of the bars because I appeared like a biological woman that I was encouraged by him and a couple of other drag queen friends of his to start doing drag. I had always been interested in theater and performing, and so that was sort of a natural fit for me. But it was while doing drag that I met the first trans women, and this would have been probably 1977. Finally, there was somebody who was like me because I knew I wasn't a straight man. I knew that I didn't fit in with the gay men. I didn't know where I belonged until I met the first trans woman. From there, it was just, how do I go about doing this? I worked at a transgender bar called The Midship in the French Quarter from 1978 to 1980, trying to do this. And then finally, in July of 1982, at St. Luke's Hospital in San Francisco, my body finally matched the rest of me. How did you become a trucker? I had read an article about husband and wife truck drivers. My husband was a submarine sailor in the Navy, and he had originally was going to make a career out of it. But he started having second thoughts about that, and I told him about this article that I read, and we thought it would be fun to do together. Then he didn't want to be married anymore, and then he told me that I couldn't go do it by myself. That was the wrong thing to tell me, because if you tell me I can't do something, I want to prove you wrong. But I think a lot of it for me was I was tired about worrying about people that I met that might possibly figure out what I was. And this seemed like a good way to not be around so many people. And I'd always loved to drive and I'd always loved to travel. So in a way, it was kind of an escape for me. I, you know, during my transition period, I had a bit of trauma that I never addressed. I was beaten and raped by a guy that turned out to be a serial killer in New Orleans in 79 or 80. There was um, a girl named Angel that he killed and a second girl whose name was Bobby Mattia who barely escaped with her life. She had to jump out a second floor window and broke her leg to get away from the guy. His name was Rusty. You know, in those days, you met somebody cute in the bar, and you took him home and, and had fun. And he knocked me out with the champagne bottle, and then he raped me with it. When I woke up in the hospital, they had not yet figured out that I was transgendered, and they were really, really nice to me. Then, for some reason, my panty girdle was removed, and my little secret popped out there. It was like turning on a lamp. They went from compassionate and caring to, oh, she got what she deserved. Patty, for most of your life, you've been what they call stealth, not out as transgendered. Why? The reason for that is when it comes to sex, I'm more of a traditional person. The idea of me being with a man that was turned on by the fact that I was trans was not something that was ever attractive to me. I wanted a regular guy. And I'm telling you right now, a regular guy back 20, 30 years ago was going to want anything to do with a woman that had been born with a penis. 
So that's why the deep stealth mode happens. And it's very dangerous. It's why you hear of trans women being murdered or beat up because they try to fly under the radar. And many do for years. I mean, I think how fortunate I was all those years that nobody ever discovered. But living with a secret like that takes a toll on a person. You know, I don't recommend it for anybody. That's why I'm working so hard now to bring trans awareness and understanding. Because until that happens, people like me can't have the simplest thing in the world, just a normal life to be a person that feels like they deserve love. I've never, ever felt like someone who deserved love because I was different. I had a secret and I had to do everything for every man that I ever was with because I was lucky enough to have a man that wanted me. I realize now how horrible it was to be that way. For me, it was just the way that it was. As older generation trans women, we had to either fly in stealth mode like I've been doing or live in extremely insular communities in order to survive. And now that it is becoming better for all LGBTQ people, trans people like gays and lesbians are coming out much earlier. They still have a harder road to hoe. The highest rate of suicide amongst youth is transgendered youth. The highest percentage rate of homelessness amongst youth are transgendered youth. The highest rate of sex workers amongst youth are transgendered youth. But still, they're starting to get a little bit more of a voice. You've overcome so many obstacles. I think you're very brave. I don't feel brave. I actually feel embarrassed a lot of the time because it took me 25 years to finally make a stand and say, hey, this is not right. So that's what I'm trying to do in the nicest, most positive, most progressive way possible is to say, hey, guys, we're here and we're queer and we need your help. This has been a conversation with Patty Spangler, a.k.a. Trucker Patty. You can follow her adventures on Facebook or on her blog at truckerpatty, that's patty with an I, dot blogspot dot com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. The documentary short recounting her story is called Trucker Patty and streams free on YouTube. Next up, a brief music interlude with gender-fluid singer Ezra Furman performing Body Was Made live at the distillery.
We'll be right back with outcaster and intersex activist Dominic Luke Wolf right after this quick break, so don't go away. American Canadian writer Jane Rule coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Jane Rule is internationally heralded as one of the first outriders to deal with a lesbian experience in major fiction. Born in New Jersey in 1931, Rule graduated from Mills College and moved to Canada four years later. There she met Helen Santoff, and the pair lived together for over 40 years. In 1964, Rule published her first novel, The Desert of the Heart. It depicted a lesbian love story with a positive ending, instilling hope in the hearts of many young lesbians who read it. Since no U.S. publisher would touch it, it was published in Canada. Many of Rule's novels are lessons in the coming together of diverse communities. For her optimistic vision, she died a lesbian role model in November of 2007. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Ruth Perkinson. Hello, I'm Trucker Patty, 
and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. Carrie Harrison with you, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. We're conditioned to think of sex in binary terms. In other words, people that are either male or female or one or the other. But nature is rarely, if ever, binary. And some people are born with a combination of both male and female organs, internal and external. And these people are called intersex. The term intersex also encompasses other things, such as different ways in which people's bodies react to hormones. Outcaster Dominic Luke Wolf shared a few words on that topic. At birth, it wasn't discovered that I was intersex, and as I was growing up, my mom did notice that I was developing secondary sex characteristics that would be stereotypically considered more masculine or male. And so she had actually asked some of my doctors when I was younger if it was concerning, and they had said no. And so she just never really did anything more with that. And it was never something for me that really concerned me. I actually kind of liked it because at the time, as I was going through my first initial puberty, I was identifying as male and masculine. And so I wanted to really have more characteristics that reflected that. So in a way, it was kind of beneficial (laughs) for me. But it wasn't discovered that I was intersex until I went into pursue a medical transition. And so it was then when I was around 18 years old when people told me, oh, this is like something that you may have that's on your radar and this kind of explains what's been going on. I know a lot of intersex individuals really don't want to have medical interventions happen and I believe that that is in regards to a lot of infant genitalia mutilation in regards to having an intersex baby who may have a physical attribute to them that a doctor feels like they need to fix to then conform this child to a binary. And so that I don't think is okay at all. Oftentimes intersex individuals who have that happen grow up having a disconnect with their body. And for me, that wasn't my experience because it wasn't discovered at birth for me that I was intersex and it was discovered when I was 18. So I had the autonomy to make my own decisions. And since I did want to pursue medical transition, I decided to take testosterone, which would balance out my hormones and kind of keep me more unstable and also regulate my emotions too, because with my hormone imbalance, it caused my emotions to fluctuate a lot. So it was like hypoandrogenism. And I'm not, um, unfortunately, I'm not like a, like a scientist. And so they just told me that basically my body had more androgens in them, causing me to have like higher testosterone levels. When it was discovered when I was 18, they told me that I had the same testosterone levels as like a 16-year-old boy would have. Also at the same time, my body was also trying to produce estrogen. So it was these two competing hormones. At least that's what it felt like for me. And so when I was initially developing, I was like, why do I have like a mustache and like hair on my back? And why do I feel like I have just more like muscle mass and density compared to these other like quote unquote like girls around me? Or why is my voice a little bit deeper? And then also for me personally, I never really talked about it with anyone, but I was always like, why is my clitoris growing to a size that I don't feel like is normal? But then I was never like comparing it to other people. So it was never really something that would come up in my day-to-day life. 
I acknowledged that my gender was different than my sex assigned at birth from a younger age because when I was seven years old, I was gravitating towards stuff that would be considered more masculine. And also I asked my parents, you know, what would you have named me if I was born a boy? And they said Dominic and I liked that name. So I kind of just kept it. And it was like a nickname that I had with friends growing up and I just used it as a nickname. And then as I got older and was like questioning my sexuality and my gender identity, it just all came to fall into place for me, understanding how I was feeling and how their identities would match with these feelings. And I still play with labels, but it was around seven when I really started to notice, oh, people are calling me a girl, but I'm dressing this way and they're telling me I dress like a boy or that they think of me as a boy. Like, why is that? Why am I a girl? And then also like, why don't they see me the same as like my older male cousins or just someone who I saw myself as equal to? My parents did ask me like, <laughs> they thought that I was taking like hormones from the black market or oh, wow. that I was getting them from someone not from a doctor, which I think is really funny because they never said that to me like blatantly until I told them like I got my blood test done and they told me like I have a hormone imbalance and that it's the reason for X, Y, and Z. And my mom was like, oh yeah, I would bring that up to your doctor, but she never really said that there was anything to worry about. And for her, I think she saw it as like, oh, maybe we could have like prevented something in the future if we had caught it earlier. But I don't really think uh, there was anything we really could have done besides maybe put me on a like hormone blocker until I was old enough to really decide if I wanted to pursue a medical transition or like have my body just naturally go through whatever it was going to go through. I don't think my parents would have been open to that just seeing how they were with my own medical transition and how unsupportive they were with that, I just don't see it being a reality that would have happened for me. I can understand how having a transgender or like an intersex child or a queer child, because these are all identities that I align myself with, I really can understand how it can be difficult to know what's going on and support them. But at the same time, it doesn't dismiss a lot of the adversity that I face because of them not being supportive of a lot of my transition. But we are at a better point of communication and also understanding than we were when I initially like first came out at 14. So I'm really lucky in that sense, but we did have a very rough emotional patch at the beginning of my medical transition and also at the beginning of my social transition and when I came out and when I was in high school and also college. So it's pretty complex with my parents, but. I'm glad that I haven't lost them completely. Now that I am on testosterone, my intersex variation doesn't really affect my like body anymore because it's balanced now. And my genitalia too, like with the growth in my clitoris, I've accepted it. And also it's pretty common for other people who have been assigned female at birth who transition on testosterone to have clitoris growth and so that kind of makes me feel a little bit more comfortable with it because knowing that even though mine was already like that before testosterone just knowing that there are other people out there who are even trans or intersex who may have a similar appearance to the genitalia regardless of the reason still makes me feel more comfortable with my body and so I'm really thankful for that. It really kind of shows the difference between sex and gender 
sex is made up of so many components, not just your genitalia, which I think a lot of individuals only believe that's your genitalia, but it's a lot of these secondary sex characteristics, chromosomes, hormones, all of these components make up your sex and like how you develop. And when I talk about gender, I talk about how it's a social construct and how based on these individuals perceived sex, they come with expectations from society of how your gender identity is supposed to align. So for example, for me growing up as someone who was assigned female at birth, I was thrown a lot of like, you need to be docile, you need to be obedient, and you can only play with Barbies. And this is like what is expected from you to like pink and to like flowers. And so when I was like discovering my trans identity, it was really cool to like see how fluid gender can be and how limiting society makes it because of some notion that they believe that men and women are inherently different. And yeah, I believe that all individuals are different. Like some people are stronger than other people, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like men and women are different and that men are all the same and women are all the same because I've met a bunch of men that would very much not be considered the same people but yet they're still considered men. And so that's where I think the intersection between sex and gender become really cool because it allows individuals to really think like, oh, how are they connected and how are they disconnected? And I think for me, having to really understand that like my sex is not in a binary and also my gender is not in a binary and how they have come to be and how they like interact with one another is really unique. And since I had such a solid gender identity, my intersex variation almost felt like validation in my own identity because it was, hey, here's a natural reason to even prove to you that everything is a spectrum and there's no binary. So for me, it was almost like, oh, this is validating. This about me is making me unique and therefore like can play into my gender identity, which also makes me inherently unique because my gender identity is defined by me and my intersex variation is mine and I think those are really cool because they give me the tools to navigate society and really see society in a perspective that not a lot of people get because not a lot of people get to be seen or navigate through society as female and then as someone who's androgynous and non-binary and then also as being perceived as male. For me when I was researching intersex I came upon like a lot of conflicted literature and so it was really trying to find like a community so going onto different social media platforms and trying to find intersex like advocacy groups or intersex just like social groups was really cool for me because then I was able to talk to people for me it was like oh cool there's like another person I can talk to about this and really you know see how it's been for them and see how it compares to my experience and how we can learn and give each other advice and support and all this kind of stuff. For me, going to this very small Catholic all-girls school, I only had 31 students in my class, and I was the only one who was identifying openly as transgender. And with it, you know, being a religious school, and with it being an all-girls school, there was a lot of adversity that came with that, and a lot of isolation that came with that. So for me, a lot of my community building was through online platforms like Instagram and Tumblr uh, and YouTube. These platforms allowed me to connect with other people my age who had similar identities to me. And, you know, a lot of them had unsupportive family as well. And so that too was just another safe way for me to really learn and grow with these people. 
when I say like my first puberty, it means when I was pre-testosterone because I look at me going on testosterone as almost like a second puberty because when you look at it, the length of the amount of changes that you will experience with your body starting hormone replacement therapy is kind of similar to how you develop naturally when your body just naturally starts to go through puberty. So I had to go through being moody again. I had to go through being really hungry again. And I had to go through acne and all of this stuff. And it was really funny because I was like, I'm 18, but I feel like I need to just eat everything in sight because I'm going through hormone changes again. And it was just, it was kind of funny because I was like, I'm in college now. Like I shouldn't be going through puberty. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I'm choosing to go through this puberty, but it's worth it because you know, now I can say like, I'm the happiest I've ever been with my body and the way I feel in it and just my own autonomy with it. And I'm really proud of it and like how far my body has been able to adapt to all the changes that have been thrown my body's way. I just think it proves that the human body is really resilient and fascinating. I think it's really allowed me to expand my knowledge on sex and also sex in other communities and cultures because the intersex community is small and therefore I've been able to meet other intersex individuals from different countries, which has been really cool because you get to see how sex and gender is perceived and viewed in these other cultures that are not a culture that I was raised in. And again, it also like solidifies for myself that it just shows that the way we view sex and gender is culturally constructed because it's how the majority views an individual based off of certain aspects that they have. And so for me, talking with these people and really understanding like, oh, you know, you had this experience too where you had to go to the doctor and have them strip you down naked and ask to really look at your body and kind of almost feel like a science experiment. It's really comforting to know that there are other people out there who have been through something like that. And it's also really liberating when you get like a text from them and they're like, yeah, I was just in the doctor's office and I just denied a medical student to be like looking at my body for like quote unquote observation because it's almost this feeling of being able to bring back your own autonomy with your body and having control over it. And I think it's really empowering because yes, you could build that courage on your own, but knowing that there are other people supporting you who go through similar things is really awesome. And that's how my intersex variation has impacted my life since discovering it three years ago. It's really helped open doors in many ways to a bunch of community and and even friends that I've made too. (laughs) So I'm really thankful that I discovered it at the age that I did. And I'm really thankful that it was presented to me at a time where I was the one making the decisions and I was the one in full control and not anyone else. You know, naturally there's not a binary because my sex isn't, you can't put it in a binary because I didn't develop the way someone who is binary female sex assigned at birth was going to develop. But then I also didn't develop the same way a binary some male sex assigned at birth individual did. So I'm, I'm in this in between. And then also with my gender, again, I don't identify with a binary male or female identity. So I'm in this gray area again, this in between, because I identify as, you know, non-binary. 
Don't go away. We're going to be right back right after this quick break. At the top of Mount Batty, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1910, an 18-year-old girl with flaming red hair left her home in early morning to climb the hills near Camden, Maine. Her name was Edna St. Vincent Millay, and she had been writing poetry about nature since she was five. On that day, she wrote a poem called Renaissance, which received immediate public acclaim and was the inspired beginning of the career of America's finest lyric poet. Writing of three mountains and a wood and three islands in a bay, it's believed that her poem was inspired by the view from atop Mount Batty. Today, at that very site, is a bronze plaque commemorating the poet and her auspicious beginning there in her beloved hills. Openly bisexual, Malay's later works made a big shift with descriptions of free and cavalier female sexuality. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Ruthie Morrison. Hello, I'm Trucker Patty, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. American-Canadian writer Jane Rule coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Jane Rule is internationally heralded as one of the first outriders to deal with a lesbian experience in major fiction. Born in New Jersey in 1931, Rule graduated from Mills College and moved to Canada four years later. There she met Helen Santoff, and the pair lived together for over 40 years. In 1964, Rule published her first novel, The Desert of the Heart. It depicted a lesbian love story with a positive ending, instilling hope in the hearts of many young lesbians who read it. Since no U.S. publisher would touch it, it was published in Canada. Many of Rule's novels are lessons in the coming together of diverse communities. For her optimistic vision, she died a lesbian role model in November of 2007. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Ruth Perkinson. Hello, my name is Buck Angel. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. Carrie Harrison with you, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. On October 26, 1996, a group of intersex people and their allies traveled to Boston, Massachusetts to protest the annual American Academy of Pediatrics Conference. Now, why? Well, their message was clear. Stop non-consensual infant genital mutilation surgeries, often referred to as IGM. Doctors dismissed the activist as a vocal minority. So to mark that date in history, October 26 has become Intersex Awareness Day. Each year around the world, intersex people and their allies strive to make the world aware of the existence of intersex people and to put an end to IGM, the non-consensual cosmetic surgeries performed on intersex babies to make them look male or female. In the coming weeks, we're going to air episodes from TTV. Talk to Vosh. In hopes of raising our intersex awareness, this week, the segment is called Walk Between the Fences. Hi, I'm Vosh Bodhi, and this is TTV, Talk to Vosh. I take you around the world to meet interesting people in and affecting the LGBTQI communities. In this episode, we kick off this ongoing series called The Intersex Interviews, where we meet people connected to the intersex community, each with their unique perspectives and stories to share. I invite you to settle in and enjoy as we explore the I in LGBTQI, right here on TTV. Talk 
Tavash. Intersex people are individuals born with any of several characteristics that do not fit into the standard definition of typical male or female bodies. Joining me now is Jessup Benedict, intersex liaison at the Center in Las Vegas. Hi, Jessup. Hi, boss. Jeff Benedict here in Las Vegas. Do you prefer Jeff? Jessup? Jess? Well, my given name when I was born was Jeff. And then um, I had to start taking hormones to survive in my 40s. So I thought I needed to be Jess. Then I came to the conclusion about 10 years into it that I'm not really either one of those people. I'm both. I'm the Jeff that I grew up as and I was the Jess that I became, but not absent of the other. So both of those people are who makes me. So I took Jeff and I took Jess and I put them together and now I'm Jessup. I love it. So I will call you Jessup. There are many types of intersex variations. What's yours? Uh, mine is hypospadias with micropenis. Or in other words, I was born a hermaphrodite. That's interesting that you use the term hermaphrodite because... I have interviewed other people who have said that the use of the term is a little pejorative. I've actually had quite a few discussions of, about this in the last couple of days. And I find that people that are hermaphrodites have no problem with the word. But people that are intersex and not a hermaphrodite think that it's a slur or, or just not a good word. So I'm having a little trouble with the fact that it seems like the intersex community is trying to erase the hermaphrodites by not allowing people to use that word. It saves a lot of time. Explaining intersex takes 20 minutes and explaining a hermaphrodite is saying the word hermaphrodite. There are different ways and schools of thought around looking at intersex people. There's disorders yeah, that, of sexual development and then there's just looking at it as a natural variation. Uh, I totally think it's a natural variation. Um, I don't like DSD because it makes it a disorder, but intersex people have been around since the time of Christ and before that, I'm sure. But in Matthew 19, 12, Jesus speaks of some people being born that way. They use the word eunuch, but um, I'm pretty sure that that wasn't the word Jesus used because eunuch and hermaphrodite and intersex were not words that were used in the Aramaic language that Jesus spoke. But he said that some people are born both male and female and that it's okay and whoever can accept this should. So it's a variation of human that's been around for thousands of years at least. It just blows my mind that this conversation even has to happen and that myself didn't even understand like that people like me existed until I was 45 years old and I found out I was that type of human. What was growing up like for you? Well, my mother was a very violent alcoholic, so it was rather abusive. I was forced to be in a more masculine way and my brother was told to toughen me up and things like that. And um, got a note home from school because my favorite color was pink, and we finally decided it has to be red, and just add a bunch of white to it, and it'll be pink. So we settled on that. And then uh, when I was in my 40s, I was dying. I had to actually sign doctor's paperwork that says, I know I'm dying in the next 90 days, and the doctor's done everything they could, and don't sue the doctor kind of paperwork. The doctor was doing an examination, thought that I had Lyme disease, and he was going to prove it. So he was doing a 
full body examination and he gets near the end of it and he looks up at me and he goes, did you know you were born with a vagina? I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what? No. <laughs> so then he explained it to me and why he said that. And I left his office and pretended that conversation didn't happen for about five years. The fact that I was dying and nobody could figure out why ended up being that my body needed female hormones. So now I take estrogen and I've, I haven't been any healthier in my whole life. And it's been gone four or five years now that I've been on estrogen. So non-consensual gender assignment surgeries are called IGM or infant genital mutilation. What surgeries were performed on you as a child? They surgically removed the vagina through hysterectomy and sewed all that closed. And then the penis was actually where the clitoris would be. So they moved it up to where it's traditionally placed. But in the process, the urethra wasn't designed to be that long in me. So it has lots of failures. And so it creates holes that aren't supposed to be there. If I pee in a urinal, I can pee in the urinal and on the person to my left at the same time. You actually even have a blog where you yes, talk about this quite specifically. What is your blog? Where does God want me to pee? As in go to the bathroom. It's all because of the uh, transgender bathroom fights that are continuously going on. And it's like, well, if you have this, God wants you to pee there. And if you have that, God wants you to pee there. And it's like, well, I was born with both. So where does God want me to pee? Where do you pee? It depends on how I'm dressed. <laughs> Which do you find yourself presenting more? I think my feminine side is more predominant, but my masculine side is more utilitarian. If I'm out and I'm in a feminine mode and a couple of guys start fighting on the bar or whatever, all of a sudden I'm in defense mode and it just like blows the whole thing. <laughs> How would you define your gender? It's kind of like describing blue to a blind person. You have baby blue and navy blue and azure blue and all the other blues in between. And it's really hard to describe it to somebody that can't feel it or see it or touch it. I don't have a label for it. I'm not really into labels. I'm just if I'm both. I'm amalgamation of male and female put together to create one human. It's not... A or B, and it's not A, B, or C. It's A through Z and one through a jillion. Because as intersex people prove, gender is not just your chromosome. What's been the toughest part of being intersex? The most difficult part for me would be the fact that I had to take female hormones and started developing female features. So I was then immediately identified as transgender. And the way people treat transgender people is the way they treated me. People try and tell you that you're insane and that you're mentally ill. And, you know, I have the advantage of medical science to know that I'm not. But if you're transgender and nobody's ever explored the fact that you're intersex, you might be, you might not be, but that doesn't make you less valuable as a human or worthy of ridicule and disdain. You are listening to TTV, Talk to Vosh. I'm Vosh Bodhi, here speaking with Jessup Benedict, intersex liaison with the LGBTQ Center in Las Vegas. 
what were your inspirations? Who were your heroes that helped you get through this difficult time? <laughs> uh, being an intersex person, that's the loneliest time of your life. Um, because I literally thought I was the only one. Didn't know there was other intersex people out there. Had never met an intersex person until I started reading about my situation. I'd never even knew it existed. And when you're first trying to learn about this stuff, it takes you to some extremely dark places that make you feel really bad about yourself because you go and try and find out on the internet and the first thing comes up is that you're a fetish. And there's very little talk about the actual numbers of people that it affects. So you're reading this about yourself and you're like, holy smokes, this is me. Am I the only one? Until you find an intersex group or create one like I did, you don't have anybody. So I'm afraid there were no heroes at that time. You have established community. Well, I felt I had to um, because I got to be honest with you, this is the last subject I want to talk about. But there's children whose lives are being destroyed the same as mine was so that they can be normal. And it's not normal to do that to a child. What type of medical intervention do you recommend for people with your variation? Unless it's medically necessary, and in my case it was not, I wouldn't do anything. There's no reason to do cosmetic surgery on a child. And if that child decides that they fit into the binary and they want to be either A or B, let them make that decision. They'll let you know. Some children mature much quicker than other children. And most intersex children are rather intelligent. Like every intersex person I know has a high IQ. I started asking because it was becoming relatively prominent. So I'm thinking that these kids would know relatively early in life how they felt whether they felt like they were a boy or they felt like they were a girl. But I don't think that they should have to decide. Which brings us to the California bill and the Nevada bills that are trying to be passed where they're actually making it law that you cannot operate on a child with yes. cosmetic surgery prior to their knowledge. Yeah, it's the second time that they've tried to get this bill to go through and they decided it didn't affect enough people, so it didn't matter. Do you have numbers? I believe intersex is underreported and that the parents that have noticeably intersex children don't report it necessarily. And the parents that have not noticeably intersex children don't know. So I'm thinking the estimate of 1.7% is at least half of what it really is. Do you believe the initialism that's used by the LGBTQI community, do you believe that it should include the intersex people? I do believe that it should include intersex people because it's literally about human rights and intersex people are human, just like gay people are human. Transgender people are human, lesbians are human, we're all humans, and we all deserve to be treated equally. A lot of intersex people are trying to stay separate from the transgender community because they don't want to be considered transgender. Some of them feel the same way about transgender people as the people that are treating them poorly, even though they're intersex and they're proof that transgender is a valid thing. I try to explain to these intersex people that I understand that you don't want to be treated like transgender people are, but you need to understand that nobody should be treated the way transgender people are. Nobody should be treated that way, ever. What are some protections that are needed for the intersex community? Well, the first thing is we need doctors. To find a doctor that knows anything about intersex is 
almost impossible. I had a primary care doctor tell me that I was lying to him and having me drug tested when I told him I was a hermaphrodite. And it was my first appointment with him and he had not read my records yet. He apologized when I went back, but that was the last time he was my doctor because I straightened him out and told him what I felt about him and then I went and got another doctor. We need doctors. Two, we need to be allowed to pee wherever the hell we want to pee. If I have this voice and I'm wearing a dress, it shouldn't matter where I pee. I should pee where I feel safe. And, you know, if somebody's, anybody is in a bathroom doing anything inappropriate, they should have to register as a sex offender for the rest of their life. No ifs, ands, or buts. So that everybody can feel safe going to the bathroom. What's the coolest thing about being intersex? For me, it's knowing that I am a variation of human that is unique. Are you at peace with your body now? Um, I wish it was the way it was when I was born, but I'm content. What wisdom do you have for other intersex people with your variation? The first thing is, A, you're human. The second thing is, you're not a fetish. And the third thing is, you're not alone. What do you think the future holds for intersex people? Kind of a back to the future sort of thing, because back in the days of Cleopatra, intersex people served on the queen's court, and um, they were the advisors to the kings, and they held positions of power and influence because they were considered to be more intelligent and trustworthy than the people of the binary sexual system. So a rise to power and conquering the world is what I'm hearing. No, I don't know about conquering <laughs> the world, but at least rising in prominence and being respected for their intelligence and their ability to see things differently because I don't see things as a man does and I don't see things as a woman does. I see things as I do and it doesn't necessarily follow gender lines. I walk between the fences. Justin, thank you so much for talking to me. Hey, the pleasure's been all mine, and I really, really appreciate you having the conversation. You have been listening to TTV, Talk to Vosh. My guest has been Jessup Benedict, the intersex liaison with the LGBTQ Center in Las Vegas. To help end infant genital mutilation, please contact your local representative and let them know you demand intersex protections. For more information or to see this interview in its entirety, please visit justvosh.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Vosh Bodhi. Remember, if you have a story to tell, TTV, talk to Vosh. It's surprising how little gays and lesbians understand even the trans experience, let alone that of intersex people. So how can we expect straight people to understand being gender variant when so few in the LGBT community do so? Well, let's be thoughtful. Let's be aware. Let's spread the word. So that's it for tonight. 
I'm Kerry Harrison, and our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, you can email public at prideonscreen.com. Public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted on kpfk.org. Also catch us on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor FM, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. I'm Carrie Harrison in Tampa, Florida today. You can catch me anytime at GoHarrison.com. I'm syndicated on 350 commercial stations. This, of course, is the excellent public radio variant, and I'm lucky to be here with you. GoHarrison.com or at all social media at GoHarrison. Want to say so long, and we thank you all for listening. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on In the glass of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect, baby So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself in regret Just love yourself and you're set I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Oh, yeah I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way (laughs) 